you know, you can't destroy matter. So somebody who maybe is very withdrawn may end up having heart issues quite young. So life isn't for free for anybody. But when it comes to emotional intimacy, that process of being able to put language to that stress is absolutely necessary. On the flip side, it is absolutely necessary that if you find yourself, when you look back, having had to really protect yourself from getting hurt, and that took the form of having to beat your chest in your life and really create a firewall, even if you look back and it seems like it was others that did it, not your current partner, that is there. That Pavlovian response to emptiness and disappointment is in your cells. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 20. Seems like a milestone number, and for all of you that listen every week and write to me and support the podcast, I want to let you know how much it means to me. (laughs) I'm actually up at my cottage recording this podcast in my car. It's a little windy out today, and my folks are sleeping in another room. So I got out early to to record this and, and talk with you all. So I hope you enjoy. I would like today to focus on some of the feedback that I've been getting on the podcast. And in particular, people are writing and asking about a phenomena that I see a lot in my practice. I've certainly gone through it in my own life, which is a situation in relationships where loneliness can creep in, or worse, one of the partners feels like they are doing all of the work emotionally. And what's very interesting about this is that when couples come to see me, it isn't normally both partners that feel this way. I may have touched on this a bunch before in the podcast, but in the, in the literature on attachment and the ways that human beings organize themselves around the ways that they reach for comfort, there really are different styles. And when we look at the neurophysiology of emotion, what we tend to see is that this organizes itself around fight or flight. And specifically what this means is that if somebody has the instinct of feeling alone or in need of comfort, one person may up-regulate. 
So go into the sympathetic nervous system and go into action towards to reach, to ask for help, to pick up the phone, to write an email. And other people will downregulate, will go into the parasympathetic nervous system, will go read a book, want to go for a walk, not want to talk about it. And, and of course, these lines are not that simple. We can oscillate, sometimes just want to go for a walk or sometimes want to talk to somebody. But I can tell you in my thousands of hours of practice, there really is a clear distinction between what somebody does the vast majority of the time. Early in the 20th century, there was the development of what is called psychological types. This was most notably written about by Carl Jung, and some people even refer to his psychology as typology psychology. Some very much practice this idea of looking at where someone lands on the spectrum of extroversion versus introversion, whether somebody has a strongly developed intuitive or feeling or thinking or sensorial function. And many of you, of course, are familiar with this. You can do a Myers-Briggs typology test online in a few minutes and get a sense of where your strengths and where your weaknesses are. Historically, these typologies were not really connected to what we've learned about neurophysiology. For instance, I don't believe anywhere that Jung or his contemporaries wrote about this having to do with the instinct to go into fight or flight or freeze. But it's clear that they're connected. It's clear that if we run more anxious and we're more vigilant around getting hurt, that we may react more strongly, which will come across as a kind of extroversion. And if we tend to downregulate when we're hurt and kind of not have a lot of mental or emotional real estate devoted to these responses, then what that'll appear like is introversion. Now, where it gets really, really, really tricky is when, over time, this very kind of binary dynamic sets hold in a relationship. And one person who tends to go into sort of outward action when they need something comes up against another person who tends to downregulate and really ruminate in a very personal and private and quiet way. It's interesting, at my cottage, I was looking, and we have a number of books there that have been there for decades, and I found a book from 1947 from an American physician, and I'll put the link to the book in the show notes, that is writing about psychosomatic medicine, meaning connecting the dots between how our emotions cause physiological distress. And what's so amazing about this is that we're in 2021. This book was written in 1947. 
And let me tell you, the fervor and excitement and claims of revolutionizing psychotherapy that people make when they talk about finally discovering how emotions contribute to physiological stress are overwhelming. But this has a long, long, long tradition. And I wonder in some ways if for each of us, our own discovery of our own emotional life and the ways that it interacts with our body, with our actions, it's always new. Nobody has ever been you. Nobody has ever been me. And so there's a kind of almost euphoric feeling when one connects the dots to ways that the body has been storing the past or trauma or emotions. And even when I say the word trauma, that has become overused. And it also implicitly suggests in many cases that somehow certain events in our life could have been avoided, as in, as in, oh, my life has taken a turn that I could have prevented and now I'm going to be scarred for the rest of my life. And I think there's a neurosis in there. I think that often trauma can be used in a defensive way, in the way that it might keep us from ourselves and others, you know, in the way that scar tissue may just become so thick and hard that you won't be able to feel anything. Now, I know that that might be a bit unpopular because there's a movement, you know, towards really becoming sensitized as a culture to all of our traumas. But I actually think it's more sensitive to create a platform and a foundation that really honors and elevates the human experience so that we're less lost and a little less surprised by the ferociousness of our struggle. So to go back to talking about relationships, this is related to what we call the pursuer and the withdrawer in relationships, the person who plans everything and comes up with ideas for the weekend or is the one that's doing the activities for the kids and the other one is more of like the silent, you know, helper who doesn't really come out in the same way, doesn't take the initiative in the same way, maybe supports through action. There are a whole bunch of threads here for us to bring together and to explore in this regard. One, to go back to the notion of extroversion and introversion, is that in many ways, what we see in a contemporary context in a relationship where where the partner who maybe goes from zero to a hundred when they're hurt and needs to learn to look at the fears and the pain that gets evoked in the absence of intimacy. On the other hand, the partner that needs to work on coming out more and taking more initiative emotionally, this very much falls in line with what was being written over a hundred years ago, which was that that part of the maturational 
process is looking at what's called the inferior function. And it's it's a lifelong journey and then some, depending on your your beliefs. <laughs> Meaning the, the process of recognizing and bringing to consciousness those parts of us that we cannot see or touch or get us into trouble or need to be developed is a lifelong process in the same way that one's physical health is a lifelong process. Can't just stop exercising. I mean, you can, but there will be consequences. And that's the same thing of stopping a kind of self-reflection. And that is one of the things that tends to diminish when we are sitting on overwhelming pain. Human relationships breed vulnerability, period. Doesn't matter how good the relationship is, doesn't matter how euphoric you feel in the beginning, it doesn't matter if there's a whole repertoire of remembering that the person made you believe that you would never suffer or that they would take care of you and you'd found a kind of zenith in your life. Eventually that fades away and eventually that exposes our pain. And I don't mean, you know, people are carrying greater and lesser degrees of of emotional pain in them. It's true. There are lines in the sand when it comes to the ways that families grow up together, the degree of emotional containment that exists in a family. That's just fact. If you haven't looked at the Adverse Child Experience Study, ACES, A-C-E-S in California, groundbreaking research longitudinal study on direct causality between certain events in childhood that lead to later life pathologies, then you should really look at it. It's It really is right now a kind of gold standard of just settling once and for all this this developmental debate. At the same time, in addition to these more empirical studies that we have, we have life. We have the contemplation of our existence. Now, I think what's really important when we talk about this is that for some people, that can start much earlier in life, meaning the loss of a parent, a sudden loss of somebody that you love, an environment where you do not feel physically or emotionally safe can trigger the human organism into survival mode. That's the whole point. That's why we talk so much about taking care of children. It really just comes down to, can we as a society help and provide enough resources so that children do not have to be watching their backs when they're young. That is very, well, it's a very specific communication to our neurophysiology because it sets the ball in motion at a young age that we need to protect ourselves. And as we often marvel at the human brain Scientists who study it often will say that there's nothing more 
complex and beautiful in the universe than how the human being has evolved into an, a miracle of neurophysiology to create consciousness. There's a maxim in academia around consciousness, which is that you don't start exploring it until you've achieved tenure as an academic, because it is such a hard problem that if you try to attempt it before you have some job security, you may have to watch out for your job because of just how controversial theories are and, and certain people that think that it can't be explained. So when the organism has a sense that it is in danger, it adapts and organizes in a particular way. And this is the really tricky part because a lot of us are walking around with quite a hypervigilant, quite a scared nervous system from a whole host of developmental experiences, what that can do is it can supercharge our strategies to maintain equilibrium. So if you look back at, at relationships, you might notice a, a pattern of, of really getting supercharged when you're hurt. And we have to draw a distinction between what in the body can feel like a very clear sense of urgency and purpose and clarity with vulnerability. Those are two very different things. So I'll try and say it again, because even for me, it's a different idea for me to articulate. But often when, you know, let's say you go to a hotel and something's wrong, the room is dirty or, you know, that feeling of when one is maybe complaining or feeling kind of righteous, yeah, it may be that you're right. And there's a sense of purpose to one's sort of mission in terms of getting, I don't know, a new room or them to rectify the problem. That's different than what we refer to in intimacy as, as vulnerability. And that's true also for the partner who is quiet. Often what happens in couples therapy, I've probably heard this hundreds of times, but when I help somebody who normally has a really hard time expressing their emotions or putting emotions to experiences in their body, and, and they finally come out and talk about how they experience distress and loneliness, that moment for the other partner that is not used to hearing them talk is incredible. And they'll often say something like, this is the partner who normally pursues for affection or who's been knocking on the person's door for years. When they actually hear about their partner's distress, they'll say something like, oh, I can hear that you really care. It's so refreshing to hear you talk about the fact that you care. On my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, I have a workbook for intimacy. Uh, you can actually purchase it if it appeals to you. But in that workbook, I, I go through some of these ways of slowing down and, and attributing language to the body, in part for the very reason that I'm describing in the podcast today. Even saying something as simple as, oh, after we fight, my, my chest is tight for a few hours, or you know, I can't focus at work. That's a very popular one. Someone says, oh, if, if we have a disagreement in the morning and I go to work, I can't think. 
but they won't share that because they don't they don't want to add to the distress of the relationship. They don't want to make the partner feel like something's wrong. Or as the theme of this podcast is is turning into, it would make them vulnerable. And that's that can be very overwhelming. But something as simple as you know, I can't focus at work sends a signal to the other partner that says, oh, I'm not in this alone. I thought it was just me that was worrying about us or how you feel. And so the real tricky part about down-regulation of emotion when it goes away, and there's a lot of early writing on this also in the 20th century that that really talks about the way, about dissociation, about just our capacity to push away discomfort. And that's real. A lot of couples can get into fights about that, right? Oh, you don't, you don't remember? <laughs> you don't remember this happening? You don't remember what I said? And the person's like, no. And, and it can feel like they're being manipulative. And maybe sometimes somebody is, but a lot of the time, as we described, the human nervous system is just so adept at reducing pain, right? Like feigning death in the wild. We have all the same material as that. And so when, when someone starts to carefully and deliberately talk about their distress, the other partner says, oh, I didn't know. And then this is, this is what avoidant partners often say. Well, I've always loved you. Isn't that clear? Do I have to tell you? <laughs> it should be a given that I love you, you know? And the image that comes to mind is it's, it's a bit like, you know, if you plugged something in and you couldn't see that your computer was charging or you couldn't, you had no indication that actually something was plugged in. And, you know, that's why on all of our electronic devices, you have these sort of meters that are showing you that your battery is charging in that. And it's helpful, right? It's helpful to have things kind of on display, especially if you really need it. If you're heading into a meeting and you really need your computer to work, language and communication serve that function in relationships. They're three-dimensional, right? They provide, you know, it's like someone giving you a tour of their house or going to an art gallery. And for some people, that process of describing is difficult. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that the human organism needs to have a model for how to express emotions from one's parents or caregivers or attachment figures. It needs to learn. It needs to have repetitive, caring processes that help shape the neuronal networks in our brain that are basically a kind of software. Now, because that software is implicit, because it is unconscious, for instance, if one experiences, let's say, a very avoidant, cold, withdrawn parent growing up, or somewhere on that range, right? Because we tend to get, I think, into binaries around this stuff, and human beings are very complicated. But there is a way that a parent might downregulate their emotions, and so a child continually comes with their, their innate excitement and they don't see it mirrored back. And this is Parenting 101. When you do a parenting course, there are often these exercises where, especially when your kids are young, 
you want to mimic them. You want to mimic their level of enthusiasm and mimic their level of pain, right? This is just mirroring. It's not getting in the way. It's not editorializing. It's just pure and simple mirroring. But the parent needs a degree of flexibility and emotional awareness to to literally make these decisions and recognize what's going on for them. And this is this is what intergenerational trauma is. Everyone asks, well, how does it happen? Well, this is how it happens. This is how it happens. Families for generations will just continue, especially if if it, they're not very mobile, right? So if a family stays in a village or a particular community for a long time, the fish never leaves the fishbowl, so it doesn't know. That's why when I work a lot with expats and people who move away and are in different cultures, there's often tremendous upheaval to be in a new place, especially if you come from the east to the west, if you come from a really conservative to a very liberal society or the opposite. But these processes of how we relate to our emotions are software, basic software that is instilled in us over tens of thousands of micro interactions with our caregivers. And so if I come back to people who write to me now who are lonely, upset, tired, there's something called the burnt out pursuer. This is a very well-studied phenomena when it comes to relationships where the partner who is normally the one always knocking on the door, right? Hey, what are you doing about your job? Are you sending out resumes? Are you are you looking? Are you leaving no stone unturned? Often there's one one partner that has that kind of energy to them. And that's a particular software. Often if I really go back into that person's past, they can clearly identify for me when they learned to save themselves like that. People will often say, I'm a very independent person. <laughs> you know, as if it was sort of immaculate independence or something. You know, I'm just, I'm just very independent. Came to me in a dream one night. No, it didn't. You became very independent, probably because you needed to at some point, for, for better or worse. And that's the beautiful thing about this. That's why I hate when what we're talking about right now gets put in these simplistic terms as in I am this or you are that or this is why our relationship sucks or you need to calm down, you know, you're not going to get through life this way. No, that's not true. So many jobs, situations require somebody to be proactive, vigilant, gregarious, strong, you know, one step ahead. So many jobs and as we know, extroversion in many ways in society is given a lot more credit. You know, we're often an extroverted society when it comes to work and all these things like taking initiative. But the flip side is also true. There's many, 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 many situations where holding one's cards close to one's chest, not reacting, having exquisite emotional control can be super useful. There's a fantastic art film about Zidane, the great football player, European football, where I think the film must be over an hour. 
And he never, in the whole hour of this film, which was taken from all these different games, and there's no narrative, it's just filming him on the football pitch. He never chases the ball, ever. He's always waiting, just waiting for the ball to cross his path or be within striking distance. And as soon as it is there, he just unleashes on it. And so that, that is an incredible testament to the neurophysiology of restraint. And so these ways that we organize ourselves in our lives, they tend to get one-sided. That's how we organize and we feel safe. But they tend to be very useful. And it is true that often one partner will be the one who drags the couple to therapy, says, why don't you read this article? (laughs) And of course, where that goes horribly wrong is when the quieter partner continually hears this as blame and criticism. That's, That's really the main thrust of where this starts to go sideways and becomes a kind of rigidifying, distressing pattern in the relationship. But to go back to the notion that this software is implicit, that we're not aware what's driving us, then when I am working with individuals who tend to upregulate when they're hurt or they're upset, often what we are not aware of is that this is protecting us. We're not aware that underneath this desire and longing for closeness and the ways that we go about it is a deep fear of being disappointed, which was already there before the relationship began. There's a beautiful idea that permeates psychotherapy, which is called transference. And I think somewhere else I go into this. Its original discovery has less to do with the ways that it is discussed right now, which had to do with actually psychosomatic illness back in the 19th century. (laughs) So this whole notion of connection of body and mind is quite an old idea at this point, well-established, that through suggestion you can actually move physiological disease. Under hypnosis, you can tell somebody to ache in a different part of their body and they wake up and something else is hurting them or they have paralysis somewhere else. Very powerful stuff. But what we have to think about and why I bring up the notion of transference is that when we come in with a very unconscious expectation that we are going to be disappointed, we may, unbeknownst to ourselves, unconsciously communicate that to our partner through our behavior, through the ways that we respond when we feel hurt and scared and alone, and how that may come out in a kind of rage, a kind of vigilance, a kind of criticism. And then we scratch our heads and we say, well, I don't understand. Why why can't they hear me? Why can't they listen to me? And what has been transferred is a kind of mistrust. Even if often what pursuers say is, I have been for years trying to let you know how I feel. I have for years been trying to tell you how hurt I am. 
But the truth is, even though that feels like vulnerability and those feels feel like bids for attachment, they are. There is a kind of pain and anguish that is being transferred unconsciously. And that is the place that actually I have to get to. In therapy, where I slow somebody down to the point where they can acknowledge how afraid they are of being let down. I have to get down to that bedrock. There is no way that you will ever feel safe and secure if, if you're very hurt in that place. You won't feel secure until that can be communicated in an embodied way and, and until the other person who may have a really hard time with emotions as well can adequately respond in their own embodied way. But it really is, it does take two to tango in this regard. And if we even just take it out of the situation of the romantic relationship, this has to do with relationships writ large. This is about what it means to let others in. And recently I was listening to a lecture on studies that really confirm that look at people that tend to downregulate their emotions. And they will often have less friendships and they will they will struggle in romantic relationships as well. And what the what the study sort of concluded was that the benefit for down-regulating emotion is less pain. I mean, that's simple, right? Less physiological pain, less thinking at night or ruminating. It literally just goes away. There's a lot of important research that acknowledges that this can go into the cardiovascular system, right? This stress, you, know, you can't destroy matter. So somebody who maybe is very withdrawn may end up having heart issues quite young. So life isn't for free for anybody. But when it comes to emotional intimacy, that process of being able to put language to that stress is absolutely necessary. On the flip side, it is absolutely necessary that if you find yourself, when you look back, having had to really protect yourself from getting hurt, and that took the form of having to beat your chest in your life and really create a firewall, even if you look back and it seems like it was others that did it, not your current partner, that is there. That Pavlovian response to emptiness and disappointment is in your cells. And so part of the trick, part of the needle that has to be thread in this regard is an acknowledgement and a recognition of that deep sense of vulnerability. And it doesn't feel good. We talk about vulnerability as if it is something that one does sitting on a dock on a beautiful day writing poetry. No, that's not what it looks like. Poetry comes out, but what, as we say in the theory of relationships, the longing comes from the fear. It's through the fear that we get to the longing. So first, very often, we have to acknowledge the risk that it is before we'll ever feel safe to talk about what we need. And so this was, I was thinking a lot about some of the letters that I received and I did a live Instagram the other week. Please, you can join me there. I'd love to have you there. It's at I am Mitchell Smolkin. If you're not on Instagram, come on and I'll be doing, you know, you can interact with me and, and I'll do live sessions where we can talk about this stuff if it interests you, where we can really get down to what it means 
to get past a lot of the ways that we have, have, have learned to survive. And that is very important for a whole host of reasons. It's important on a physiological level. It's important as we get older and our cognitive abilities begin to deteriorate. Because remember, you know, it's the same thing of watching someone play a sport. And when they're younger, they just have more ability, not only just to play, but also to be defensive in the, in the, using this in the context of playing sports, right? As you get older, you'd have a much, much harder time defending yourself against a ball coming at you or a human being coming at you. You just wouldn't be as agile. And remember, our brain is tissue, and the ways that it organizes to protect us from threat will also start to diminish. And so the more that we can understand it and be conscious of what is driving us, the more nimble we will be when our faculties start to shift. It's not going to come as a surprise in the same way. And, and this is a phenomena, again, in my practice that is clear. When people are caught off guard by a, a major illness, COVID has played a huge role in this regard. You know, COVID has slowed down people who normally go very fast, including myself. But it also reaches a pathological level sometimes where it comes so out of the blue literally people's neurophysiology suffers. And I I think that's a part of what we see of long COVID and other kinds of disorders that have a fatigue element to them, as if the processor is kind of running in the background at a high level when you hear your computer fan going. That that goes back to the exquisiteness of, of the human brain and its priority to survive. It's regulating homeostatic function, which is out of awareness. So the more that we can slow down and really do the work of looking at ourselves, that that will put us in a better place in our relationships, even if it does take two. And that needs to be acknowledged because I know that I was a bit nervous coming to this podcast that people who feel exhausted will feel blamed in some way. It's not about that. You know, relationships require a certain parity when it comes to communication, interaction, but there is a mistake and I have to be more direct as I get older with clients who come in who are who tend to go into anger and rage and and are the ones always knocking on the door. I have to normalize that, but then I have to seriously confront where that's coming from. It can't be about the other person all the time. <laughs> to be honest, it can only be about them some of the time. Because the, the royal road to connection comes from this place of instability and vulnerability. And that is super hard if you spent your life trying to be one step ahead. That is a, a whole journey in and of itself. So I wish you well. Thank you for joining me here. You can find me, as I said, at I am Mitchell Smolkin on Instagram, my website, mitchellsmolkin.com. I know I remind you of these things every episode, but for my new listeners and those that are just finding the podcast, please come interact with me, join me there. 
I'm going to be doing a summit in October. Dates to be announced. Check my website. Check the podcast. And uh, please rate and review it if you're new to the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. And I remain faithfully yours.